If you notice, we have a handout today. Uh, the handout is entitled MTD and You. We are not talking about a disease, though it does sound that way. But we will, uh, we will talk about that in just a minute. So let's, uh, let's start out with a word of prayer, and then we will get going. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that today we are able to come to your house and worship as a family. We pray that uh, what we do today and what we say today will honor you um, in the way that you have commanded us in your word, that our worship will be in spirit and in truth and for the glory of God. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, we have a theme uh, going on today. Uh, it's going to be in Sunday school and for the sermon today. The theme is about maturity. Um, and so uh, we want to talk about that. Uh, today I want to talk, or for Sunday school, I want to talk about maturity as it applies to young people moving into their adulthood. Um, you see, we, um, many of you are young people moving into your adulthood, and some of us have young, uh, we have children that are moving into their adulthood, and sometimes what we forget is that uh, moving into adulthood uh, requires things of adults. We kind of live at a time where adults want to be adults without all the requirements of adulthood. And I wanted to talk about a book that was uh, written not too long ago by a guy named Christian Smith. And I know we're taking a break from bios today uh, to talk about this, but I think it's, it's going to be important for us. Uh, what this guy did was he went and interviewed hundreds upon hundreds of teenagers now, what's important about an interview as opposed to a poll. With a poll, you have kind of um, questions that are about as clear as they can be, and the answers are pretty simple, so that you can get a clear, you know, at least an idea of where everybody is, whether they actually understood the question or not is, is for debate, and how people interpret terms is always open to debate when it comes to people you know, when you, when you take a poll. What this guy did was, uh, Christian Smith went and did interviews. This is to establish that the person you are getting information from actually understands the terms, um, has a clear understanding of, of what kind of responses are available, and all that sort of stuff. So you actually get a more accurate um, understanding, even if it's not... Uh, as broad. So sometimes you can't go as broad, but you get more accuracy this way, uh, going more narrow. And he interviewed teenagers that were getting ready to leave home. And I know we've all heard polls that are quite terrifying, but uh, I, have, uh, I have on your uh, handout there, we have uh, percentages that you're going to write in if you want to anyway. So, attends religious services weekly. When it comes to teenagers, 
particularly teenagers that are moving from home kind of on their own. This would be teenagers that have gotten a job and moved out or teenagers that are uh, in college and no one's breathing down their neck to go to church and things like that. 35% attend religious services weekly. 35%. Yeah, I mean, compared to some other hor horrifying things we've heard, uh, it's almost surprising it's that much. <laughs> um, attend at least monthly, 15%. As far as teenagers that say that religious faith is important in their lives, I want you to think about this. So 35% attend services weekly, 15% at least monthly, so they're at least entering the door, uh, you know. 60% say that, the, that religious faith is important in their lives. 60%. That is huge. They say that it is important in their lives. But attending church, not so much. 40% report that they pray daily. Yet only 25% say that they have been born again, where they're actually trying to deal with some kind of theology of their eternal salvation. Okay. So these, these uh, percentages seem to be everywhere. Uh, attendance uh, regularly in church services seems pretty low, but it seems pretty high that they say that their religious faith, faith is important in their lives. You have a fairly high number saying that they pray daily, yet a really low number saying that they actually understand their faith enough to know what born again is, and they assign themselves to it. So what they find is that teenagers feel good, many of them that actually do attend, the teenagers feel good about the congregations they belong to. Some say that faith provides them with guidance and resources for knowing how to live well. And what all this is kind of demonstrating that this man found in his, in his interviews with these teenagers is that kids who come from very religious, or if I can put it this way, Christian families, who are faithful and find in intense importance not just in attending but understanding and pursuing God, these teenagers are moving from that to a spirituality. That they feel that there is a spirituality that they can achieve without attending church very often. There's a spirituality that they can achieve without really pursuing God, since that takes time. They seem to pray, but the question is, who are they even talking to? What Christian Smith realized was that very few of these teenagers were actually even Christians, and that's your first uh, 
your first word anyway that you're going to be writing in there. Very few of these teenagers are actually Christians. The trend is that young people who have been brought up believing or at least attempting to put in their heads that uh, your church is important because God is important. God is important, therefore you need to pursue him, which takes discipline and work. And now we have young people that grow up hearing that and moving away from it, saying, I don't need to work at it. I don't need to be committed to it. I can achieve it on my own. And this is, uh, this is where he found uh, that young people end up. He said he calls it moralistic, therapeutic deism, MTD. And so in today's Sunday School, I want to introduce you to MTD. It is the disease of the next generation. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, it is, you know, back in, I would guess, the 80s and 90s, kids would grow up, and if they wanted to rebel against God, um, if they were done with all the stuff their parents are telling them to do, and they wanted to be super unique by... Uh, rebelling, because it's so unique to rebel against God's word. I mean, who does that? Uh, so anyway, um, I'm being very sarcastic today, because today we're going to learn about sarcasm in 1 Corinthians. I have stories. Okay. Um, you know, they want to be unique, so back in the old days, they would just walk away. All right, back in the 80s and 90s, they'd grow out their hair super long, they would commit themselves to a band of their choice and just walk away from God completely. And, uh, and that was how they reacted. Today's young person, I would say, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but they don't even have the guts to do that. They're so passive and so weak that all they do is they don't want to mess up you know, relationships. They want everything to stay nice. So they just kind of, oh yeah, I, I, I'm going to keep up with that. And so, you know, they, they'll attend church for a while to please mom and dad, and then they'll kind of drift away from it. Uh, but they'll keep their spirituality, right? God becomes an additive, right? When the coffee of, of the world seems too bitter, uh, they add their, their God's their God sweetness to it so they feel better about themselves, right? This is the, the young people of today, and it's turned, according to Christian Smith, like I said, to what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, you, know, you guys know what moralism is. You probably know what therapeutic, uh, therapeutics are and all that sort of stuff, therapy. But what is deism? Does anyone have any ideas what deism is? What was that? Like one God or some kind of, uh, there is a God, but he's kind of off there and we don't. Yeah, good. Look at this. This is a seminary uh, church, isn't it? Yeah, everyone, uh, y'all know what it is. Okay, so uh, deism is the idea that God got everything going 
And uh, like a clock, uh, you know, he got the pendulum swinging and then he kind of, he's gone. Uh, you might yell, you know, call out to him every once in a while and he might turn his head and go, oh, what's going on over there? That watch I just made. And uh, maybe he'll have to fix or adjust a few things for you, if he cared. I mean, maybe he doesn't care, but maybe he wants to keep the watch going. And uh, so he'll answer those prayers just to keep the watch going. Um, that's the idea of deism. So here are five different tenets of deism. Are we ready? The first tenet is that God exists. Okay, A God does exist who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. He watches, keeps an eye. Right? You could say this for a lot of, uh, I'm sure Joe Biden believes this, right? One of our great examples of Christianity. Um, what was that? Well, we're going to get there. Yeah, so the question was what would we think of that first tenet? We'll get there. It's a good question. Because you know, we say these things too, right? Okay, number two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That's your fill-in-the-blank part there. I mean, it is true that most world religions, most, want people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. I suppose in Islam, uh, that's achieved after everyone becomes a Muslim. <laughs> and then, then you can start being nice, but you've got to convert first, and sometimes that takes uh, some war. Okay. But eventually you get there. Okay. Number three. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. To be happy... And feel good about yourself. That is uh, number three. Number four. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. That's your next one. To resolve a problem. Otherwise, he's watching you. Right? Making a list. Sometimes he has to check it twice. But he's watching. Number five. Good people go to heaven. That's your next blank there. Good people go to heaven when they die. You'll notice there isn't a six that deals with the other one. All right, we don't need to. That's all right. And you know what, you know, what constitutes a good person? You know, deep down inside, we're all trying to do our best. Right? And if you're doing your best, then why wouldn't that be? what a good person is. Okay. So, what part of this is the moralistic part, do you think? Yeah, that's right. That the central goal, in, or I'm sorry, that, uh, that God wants people to be good, to be nice and fair to each other. And you can see this in our political world as well. But this is the basic, these are the basic 
tenets of young people as they leave a lifetime of Sunday school, a lifetime of sermons that, is, that are preached to them, some of them a lifetime of Christian schooling. And this is where they come out. They come out on the other side with this moralistic idea of the world that God wants people to be good, whatever that means, nice, whatever that means, and of course, fair to each other, whatever that means. Okay? And then, uh, sometimes they're even introduced to other religions, and it seems like all other religions are saying that same thing. I mean, isn't it true that in Buddhism, that being good to each other and being nice to each other is very important, especially being fair? I mean, why don't we just become Buddhists? Then you don't even have to worry about a god anymore. Um, you know, why not Mormons? I mean, isn't... Uh, What's his name? I always forget his name. Uh, Will Wright, yes, that's true. Uh, I was thinking of the radio host, uh, Glenn Beck. Isn't Glenn Beck a nice guy? Doesn't Glenn Beck want us to be nice and good and fair to each other? I mean, you know, you listen to his, to his monologues, and that is a lot of what he teaches. I mean, he'll tell you. You know, the country needs to come together because in the end we want everyone to be fair, right? We do want people to be nice to each other and good to each other. He's a good Mormon. So why don't we just all become Mormons? Then you get to be God at the end of it, right? There's enough planets out there, I would suppose. So um, as young people are then introduced to the idea that other other uh, religions seem to be teaching these same things, they become very disengaged with Christianity particularly. I know this because I teach at a Christian university, and it is their senior year by the time they get to my class, and they're asking all kinds of questions. I have this, I think I've told you before, I have this little spot where they can go online and ask questions anonymously so that you know, they can feel safe. There's a safe space, but it's only online. Um, and so they ask these questions, and I, I find that they're asking questions that should have been answered back when they were like sophomores in high school. And they're still wondering on these things as seniors in college. After going through an entire life, at least until they're 21, of teaching, 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 and they're still asking, how do I tell my friend about Jesus when my friend is suffering so much? How can God be so cruel to homosexuals when it's not their fault that they're homosexuals? These are the questions I get. And I think to myself, have you not paid any attention to anything that has been said to you up till now? But this is, this, this is where they are. That all these years of doctrine, of Sunday school, of Christian schools, of parents, have led them to this idea that God wants people to be good to each other, nice to each other, and fair. And it seems like that's what it, where everyone else is coming from as well, so it's not really particular to Christianity. When they have learned, I would guess, what good means to God. Or maybe they haven't. That good is actually a theology that's tied to God's holiness. 
that has a lot of implications about what good means, and it doesn't just mean that everyone gets what they want. And being nice to people, how ironic is it that a lot of teenagers who scream at Christians about, in Christianity, no one's nice, and they don't even know how to be nice to their parents. Okay. That's the moralistic part. What about the therapeutic part? Which of these are therapeutic to young people? Yes, happy and feel good. So young people have been given the impression, mostly by their influencers, right, about what happiness means. Uh, Through the songs they listen to and the social media that they have attuned their ears to, they have been taught that happiness lies in a relationship that you have romantically with someone. And that's where your happiness is. And if you don't think that, then you're crazy. And every song pushes, pushes, pushes. If you have this romantic relationship, then you will be happy. And they push it, and they push it. And social media, with everyone taking pictures of them and their girlfriend with their filters so their skin looks perfect, even though everyone knows it's not. They take these pictures and you think, wow, I want that. That will finally make me happy. Right? And anyone that's been married for longer than 10 minutes understands (laughs) that, yes, a romantic relationship can make you happy, but, man, it is the beginning of a lot of work. And we say work because we don't want to offend our wives and our husbands, but what we really mean when we say work is it's a lot of pain, it's a lot of choices that you don't feel like doing, It's a lot of uh, decisions that you have to make that you thought you would never make when you were putting filters on with you and your girlfriend. It's at times having fights that make you think, I don't even know who this person is or ever want to know them. Where you finally get to the point where all those, that big list of why you like them are that list actually is the list that annoys you the most about them, right? And you finally understand what it means to love someone, not for what they can do for you, right? But this is the talk of the world. The talk of the world is you need to find someone that will make you happy. I tell my students, I say, if anyone ever looks you in the eyes, on a romantic evening with the moon out. They look deep in your eyes and they say, I love you. I always tell them, ask them why. And if they say something like, because you make me so happy, I tell them, run. (laughs) Because what they have done is they have just said the most selfish, horrible thing they could possibly say to you, which is, you are now responsible to make me happy. And if you don't make me happy, then we're done. This is the premise of every high school relationship. You might say, well, don't you mean most? No, I don't mean most at all. 
Every high school relationship, the premise is, I have found someone that will make me happy. Their shape, their face, or whatever it is, that will make me happy, and that's why we're together. When the shape or the face or whatever it is ceases to make you happy, you definitely will break up with them. And we have a world that says the central goal in life is to be happy. And if we translate that into language our teenagers can understand, is the central goal in life is to find someone to place all the weight of your happiness on. And they better not disappoint you. Okay. And when you find that person that you can put all that weight on to make you happy, you will feel good. You will feel good. And you'll even feel good about yourself. Because that's the end goal, right? Not to be there for someone else or to help someone else. It is to feel good about you, right? Because that's the other thing that sometimes music does for teenagers. That's why teenagers are so obsessed with their music. You understand what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with loving music, but there's always like their music. Where they stop at that stop sign, they get to that, they get to that song that is their song. Back in the day, they used to call it my jam. I know they probably don't say that anymore because that's not cool. But there was a time where there was a song and that was your jam and you would turn it up, put your windows down so everyone heard your jam and understood this is my jam and I can be identified with this song because no one else in the universe is listening to it but me. And as people drive by and hear your song, they say, oh, isn't that John's song? Oh yeah, that's John's song. No one says it. It's probably not that good of a song. You'll discover this when you hit your 40s. You'll look back on those songs and go, oh yeah, that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but at the time, you thought it was really cool and that people identified you as the cool one listening to that song because you wanted to feel good about yourself. <clears throat> In fact, young people today, many of them, and please listen, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying depression isn't real, but I'm saying there's a lot of kids out there who face depression because they have been convinced their goal in life should be to feel good about themselves. And they don't, and therefore they're depressed. They've also been told the only way to feel good about yourself is to find someone that will make you happy. And they wonder why the rest of their life is filled with selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. And they don't even see it because they've been assured this is what you need to be doing. Be happy. And if I can translate it to what we adults hear is, the world is saying the central goal in your life is to be as selfish as possible and then you'll feel good. This is the therapy of the world. Now, there is some deism in there. Because uh, we've got to keep the religious part, right? Otherwise, you know, we might, we might make our parents disappointed, and that will make us not feel good about ourselves. So we've got to keep some deism in there, some ideas about God. And so we have two of them there, right? The first one and the last one. The first one is 
that God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life. And I suppose, you know, there's people that would say that's what we say. And we do. We say not just a God exists, but the God exists who created and orders the world. And we may not say watches over human life. We might say is involved and engaged in human life. Um, if he is engaged in human life, that would change some things, right? Number five, good people go to heaven. And I suppose there's an interpretation of that that would work. Um, what does it mean to be good uh, when God says no one's good? Um, I guess the only good you would have is if you're united with Christ who is good. And then you would go to heaven. If that's how you're looking at that, that's not a bad interpretation. But that's not how teenagers look at it a lot of times. A lot of times, teenagers are looking at this as um, good people go to heaven when they die means people that I believe have met my standard of ethics are definitely going to go to heaven. And if God disagrees with me, I can't worship that kind of a God. And I know this because I talk to these students often, uh, teenagers <laughs> who are students. Um, and the thing that they say, uh, and oftentimes because, you know, you fi I find that when I, the longer I work with young people, um, the more you end up talking about sexual relationships because um, their bodies are designed in a way that that that's, what they're, that's what's on their mind. So when you're talking about identity with someone, you're usually talking about some kind of idea of sexual thinking where they identify as what their hormones are pushing them toward or whatever. And so I, get a, I, I hear a lot of students say, you know, how can God you know, condemn someone when they can't help it? Right? And because they see homosexuality often as a condition. Um, and then they tell me about a friend they have. And they have to come to the conclusion that God would be condemning their friend. That makes sense? And so they get really upset because if they were God, they wouldn't do that. They understood their friend and they understand their friend means the best and he can't help this. Right? This is the... This is the this is the talk of uh, re revoice, you know, that has attached itself to the PCA, where revoice is uh, saying, well, this is the way we are. You know, we're not going to act on it. That's what makes us so pious and good Christians. But this is who I am. I am a homosexual, right? And so they've even found ways to continue relationships that are non-sexual you know, with people they're attracted to, um, but they don't act on it. And this is the conclusion that you come to, is that they don't believe that sin is sin. They don't believe being attracted to someone of your same sex is a sin. And because of that ethic, if God believes it's a sin, right? They even talk in this kind of way. But if God even says it's a sin, then his ethical framework does not meet my ethical framework. 
And now, who's going to change? Is it going to be me or God? In our world, it's going to be God. And this is the part that's really sobering, and this is what I mean, um, is this. As they change God to meet their ethical standard, they start worshiping a different God. They look like us as they enter the building, and they even sound like us. They might even reinterpret the songs we sing to match, you know, like to be like us. But in the end, they're worshiping something else. They're worshiping a God who gets it, right? who understands that their ethical code actually is better than what the Bible says, and that God says, I will accept you. The God that is, seems cold and mean because he won't let you do what you want seems very distant. But the God that finally allows you to do everything you wanted to do, and you get to stay spiritual, right? The God that says, yes, you're disobeying your parents, but look how unreasonable they're being. That God will accept you. And that's a great, I mean, you know, think of the freedom you suddenly have with a God who gets your ethics and says, yes, your parents are being way too irrational about this. And they don't understand, Right? And what you, what you find is a God that slowly pushes you deeper and deeper into your sin, right? Uh, when I was younger, people would say that was a false God, and it's true, but what they meant by that was something that really wasn't there. And I think we, um, we have gotten so far away from the idea that maybe there is something there that you're worshiping. It's not that you have created something that doesn't exist. It's that something that does exist is coaxing you to worship it. Um, and just in case you might be thinking I so I'm sounding too, uh, too strange or too charismatic or something, I was reading a, a book by a guy that, changed, that wrote a whole dissertation on the idea that when we worship false gods, we're not worshiping something that isn't there, but we're worshiping something that is. And they're active. And that we really do live in a spiritual warfare where our teenagers, as they begin to morph God into their, their particular idea of what God should be, they begin to really worship demons that are active in their lives. And I'm telling you, it sounds, it sounds kind of medieval, and I get that. And if I start sounding like Luther, that's not so bad. But, um, but, but we often give our kids a pass, right? We're like, well, you know, they, they're, you know, they have this idea of God that isn't right. You know, because anytime you're thinking, you know, young people, anytime you're thinking that God kind of has, 
you know, has spoken against this in his word, but kind of understands you. That when you do it, it's, you know, he gets it, it's not so bad. If that's the God you're thinking of, then you're worshiping something else. If you're thinking of a God that kind of has room for you to, to treat your parents as you will, because they are being whatever to you that you think is bad. Um, if you think that's the God that is sympathetic towards you, then you're worshiping something else. If there is a sin that continues in your heart, a sin that constantly is there, if you are battling pornography right now, I hope you're battling it. But if you're battling it and there are times where you fall into it and you think, well, maybe God understands that this is difficult for me and God gets that, that you know, this is, I don't want this. And so this is, you know, I get it's a sin, but it's not that bad because, you know, I have an addiction or I'm, I'm going through a hard time. God understands that I'm, I'm under a lot of stress right now. And we start creating a God that is no longer holy, but a God that is like our buddy. Um, it is true that, our, that through Christ we have a friend, but this friend is still holy. When we sin, God doesn't get it. When we continue to, to live in this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic world, God is not thinking, well, they've had a tough childhood. God is not thinking, well, this is difficult for them. You know, we've got to be patient. God's demands are God's demands. And if I were Satan, this is what I would do. I would get my demons to convince all the young people I could that the God that passes on his holiness is the God for you. And you really can worship God through the God that passes on his holiness. In fact, I would even have my, my demons comfort you in that. Or you would find comfort in these ideas, so that you would continue to worship my demons. I would also make any talk about demons and Satan sound kind of crazy. And any kind of sound of grace, mercy, and peace sound like the answer. Because it's, all, it's half true, right? It is the answer to, uh, to your life from a holy God. From a holy God. We want the grace, we want the mercy, we want the peace, but we just want it from a God that's not holy. I've been dealing with this um, even within, um, you know, I have a, I have a brother who um, has fallen away from the Lord if he is still with the Lord. And he constantly talks about God's grace and how 
he doesn't feel any guilt because God has already forgiven him of everything. And so he doesn't need to feel guilty because he knows he rests in God's forgiveness. And what he wants is a God who forgives. He wants a God who gives you peace. He wants a God who has grace and mercy on you. But he doesn't want a holy God. Holy gods are mean. Holy gods demand things of you. Holy gods say, be holy because I'm holy. And holiness annoys us. And yes, there are Pharisees in this world. But Pharisees don't get to then be the excuse for not being holy. How, and, I, and I've told a lot of young ladies this, and I've told a lot of young men this, you want to know the character of the person you're dating, which you probably won't know because they're being really nice to you all the time. And when someone's nice to you, you assume they have good character because, after all, they were smart enough to be nice to you. <laughs> and so I had a young lady in my office the other day who was, had heard something I'd said in my in my class and it worried her about her relationship with her boyfriend and I said this if you really want to know what he's like watch how he treats his mom um, that will tell you his character does he cut up on his mom around you does he respect his mom does he treat his is he in his 18 to 21 year old self and still expects mommy to be a mommy instead of being a help to her. Because however he's treating her, that's how he's going to treat you. If he treats his mommy like a mommy, then he's going to expect you to be a mommy, right? And if he disrespects her, he's going to disrespect you. You better believe it. You just have to make him mad enough. And I say the same thing with young ladies and their fathers. And so this is, <clears throat> I say all this because I want us to be on the alert that sometimes as we watch our children grow or as those of you in here that are entering into the world of adulthood, I want to, you to, to be aware that there is a religion that will be very easy for you. The religion of moralistic therapeutic deism is a very easy religion. You even get to keep going to church and maintain relationships there. You can even fool your parents into thinking you're okay so that you don't have to deal with that. It's one of the easiest religions out there. Um, and you don't have to be so strict like your parents were who were so strict. I want you to be aware of this because without the discipline, we're going to talk about that for church uh, this morning, without the discipline of true Christianity, um, this is where you're, you're going to end up. Because discipline means you have to do hard things. And when Christianity asks you to do hard things, the thing that's going to motivate you is your love for Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, then when you are asked to do hard things from a holy God, you will say no, and you will worship a different God that will let you be who you want to be. 
So I say that warning to those of you that are uh, entering into adulthood and those of you that have children who are entering into adulthood. Beware of MTD. Um, I wish there was some kind of inoculation for it. I think the one inoculation we can have is the love for Jesus Christ, which I think is one of the, uh, one of the things that we are losing in our society today. We have kids who are really interested in ideas. They end up going to seminary. We have kids that are really interested in their little, um, their little worlds of interest and all that sort of thing. But it seems really hard to find people who love Jesus Christ, who even know him enough to know what to love. Um, and so um, my encouragement to you is that you don't have to fall into that, young people. Serving a holy God is going to be the only way that you will survive, the only way that your soul will enter into eternity with the kind of happiness that you really are looking for. The big lie is that a holy God will keep you from happiness when the truth is the demon that wants you so much that will not lead you to happiness. All you have to do is watch every single person that has become famous or rich and ask yourself, have they found the kind of happiness that you think is really what happiness is? I'll leave you with this. I saw this kid last semester wearing a Nirvana t-shirt, as if they were even alive when Nirvana was around. But I'm sure they thought it made them very cool. But I'm sure they also didn't know that the lead singer of Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, um, who was given the only responsibility in his life was to be loved by millions of people and to do the one thing he liked, which is sing. He was given millions upon millions of dollars to do this. People loved him. He changed the face of music. People stopped wearing high heels and big hair on stage because he said, no, you can just fall out of bed and go on stage, and people said yes. All he had to do was be rich and famous, and he put a sawed-off shotgun in his mouth. I tell kids that because I want them to understand the lie ends there. The lie ends there when it's too late. He worshipped a demon for as long as he could, and the demon had nothing else to promise him, so he put a gun in his mouth. Please know, young people, that is where their happiness ends. But with a holy God, you have happiness for eternity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, even when we are not good to you. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we are not faithful to you. Lord, we pray for a morning of worship that will be honoring to you and that words said on your behalf will be words with power from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.